Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in into the Savvy Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Ruben Yan. He's a Canadian R&B singer and songwriter from Calgary, Alberta. He's best known for his album, Dream State, which features one of the online hits, Rachel Green. For all of you Friends fans, highly recommend to check it out. He was recently named Apple Music Canada's New Artist of the Week, and Ruben's independent releases through his own label, Yan and Lucky, have earned him over 5 million streams and a place on stage as direct support for international artists. Ruben will be sharing with us his tips for success, his knowledge about the industry, plans for the future, and everything else in between. And with that, please welcome Ruben. Okay, well, first of all, for all the listeners who may be not know who you are, which is ridiculous, but do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, it's not ridiculous, first of all. My name is Ruben Young. I'm an artist, make R&B soul music. I live in Toronto, but I'm from Calgary. That's like the quick and dirty. What about what kind of music you create? Where do you find your inspiration? The muse. Yeah, <laughs> I make soul music. It's definitely... Saying R&B is such a broad stroke right now because there's so many sounds in it, but mine is more influenced by 70s soul, Marvin Gaye, James Brown, obviously with newer production and hip-hop influence and pop influence. So it's like definitely harder and harder in 2020 to put one label on any sound. That's a bit of the gist of my thing. I like it. So then how did you get started? Were you... A little boy and you always dreamed to be an artist and always wanted to sing or how did you get into it? I was not that little boy. No, I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was little. I love dinosaurs. <laughs> that was my thing, bro. No, I kind of grew up resenting music a little bit, to be totally honest with you. My dad uh, was a singer and kind of an aspiring artist and he did some pretty cool things, but in a nutshell, he wasn't really the best dad. He wasn't around. And so I kind of correlated, cross-correlated music with dad. And I kind of ran from it, to be honest. I loved it and naturally sang. And my mom always took care of the things that I wanted to do. So like, I wanted to do vocal lessons. So I did them, but I always did it as a hobby. And in, in the back of my head, I was always like, I'll never actually do this. This is just fun for me. Um, like, I loved basketball. And then when I grew up, I went to UC and where I met you and did finance. And even though I was playing in bands, even at that time in my life, I was like, there's no way music will ever be my career. Like I'm starting businesses. I'm getting into finance. I'm, I'm a millionaire by the time I'm 30, which is still the goal, by the way. We're not, the trajectory is a little bit different or the path there is a little different. So how I really got started though, was aside from playing, you know, talent shows and in bands here and there, I did Canadian Idol when I was 16 and I just tried out Everybody was like, you have to try out. You're 16 now. So I did it. And uh, I got to go to the top 50. So my, like, my mom and I went to Toronto. It was like a dope experience. And it, when I came back, I was like, okay, I think I'm good at this. But it wasn't until after I graduated university, I started to fall more in love with it. I kind of had this like weird roundabout route to how I got here because I first said, okay, I'm going to take my business school experience and my love for music and I'm going to try to combine those. So I started a music festival in Calgary, like a local kind of pop-up festival. I called it 50 Days YYC. And it was like a different artist in a different venue every day for 50 days. It was like a big undertaking. I lost all my money. 
Uh, I went so broke. I started with a small team, but it ended with just me. So it was a total nightmare. And I went through a breakup. So I started actually writing my own music at that time for the first time ever. And that is when I actually fell in love with it was when I kind of crossed over from being a guy who likes music and as a singer into being a songwriter and, you know, more connecting with it as art instead of like this, this thing, this career, this like passion. It was more like an art to me. My bosses sat me down when I worked in asset management uh, at Richardson GMP. And my bosses sat me down one day because I played at one of their like charity events. And they're like, listen, we see potential for you in this industry, but way more potential for you in music. Like you should leave and go pursue that. And if you ever want to come back and get a job, you totally can. Like we'll, we'll always be here, but you should go chase this thing. And yeah, I did. I love it. And that's, I think, what I find really fascinating about your story, because we met at university and like yeah. many, you did the finance degree and, you know, wanted to do the asset management route. And then next thing we all know, you're performing and you're great. Yeah. And we go to your shows and so proud usually because uh, you're just one of us, one of the graduates. And it's very For exciting. Asking. It's, it's just the best, you know, like you are good life, like you're amazing life as you obviously have heard before. Now, in terms of creating your own music, first of all, the event, was it a success? Did you make it work? Okay, it was a success in terms of my vision for creating more buzz, definitely got a lot of buzz and more opportunity for local artists, especially in more in my genre and like pop R&B. So from that perspective, it was definitely successful. Financially, I took big L's. We are like our day one festival. I put together this big thing. We had eight bands, a big outdoor stage, like music festival stuff, you know, food trucks. I had party buses picking people up from around the city. We had like, I think like 1,600 people confirmed on Facebook. So I was fired up. We had liquor sponsors, the whole deal. And then it was August 15th and it was uh, eight degrees and hailed. Classic Calgary coming for me. Yeah. So I was like, so 200 people showed up and we had a liquor license infraction or infringement and the liquor board came and hit us with a fine. So I lost one of my sponsors and got rained out. I lost my whole radio sponsorship. I lost so much money that day. And then I had 49 left. It was a disaster. (laughs) It was a disaster. It was a good lesson to learn. So have you organized any events since? It was really good perspective because at that time, I'm, I'm sure you relate to this when you're young and like 20, younger than 24, let's say, and you have all of these passions and, and ideas and you kind of want to do so many of them. That really taught me that events, first of all, aren't really for me, but most importantly that like, if I'm going to pursue music, like let's just do music. Let's be the artist that I am instead of trying to be a show promoter and this and that in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm starting a record label. I'm going to be a manager. I can do all of it. And you're like, but you know how broke artists are? Like you could only be one of those. So (laughs) I love it. I love the story. I love the lessons, I guess, in terms of writing your music. So you Mm -hmm. said the first time you started writing was the inspiration from the breakup. And then how does it translate into your music now? Because you have some pretty amazing songs. And I know that, you know, Paleontologist, is that from the Friends reference, being Ross Geller? 
Is that yeah, yeah. Is that, is that, oh, <laughs> interesting. I never thought about that. Well, because you have a song, Rachel Green, and I was yeah. like trying to find connection to all the <laughs> lyrics. Mm, mm, I don't know if my relation to Ross was very strong, but you're right. We both love dinosaurs. That's true. No, that's a great question. Yeah, it started out as just like ranting about an ex, and then it definitely evolved. And everything evolves. And obviously, in art, you find new sounds, new stories, new perspectives. You're influenced by new stuff. But I really transitioned from writing about exes into, especially in this last year, it's been a huge shift since like, let's say last uh, October, where I've just started writing way more stories about myself, my life, my history, my background, my culture, my ambitions, life itself. You know, there's way more to write about than just love. <laughs> so I was really, you know, locked into that for forever. And Now I'm just so excited because the music to me has so much more depth and so much more of myself in it, really. Listening to hip-hop and rap as much as I do, I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. But when you listen to Mac Miller or Anderson Pack, like you get so much in a song. You get so much different perspective and color. And these guys aren't afraid to just say what they think. Like these artists that I love just let themselves say and just be like the way they feel about everything comes through in their music. And that's what art is. It's like, it's ultimately your expression of yourself, your perspective in the times. And I'm excited because I'm a lot more in that lane now than I ever have been. I love it. And then, so how long did it take you to get there? So you said you were trying to do everything before you were 24. And then when did it actually you know, became like a pivot and you said, you know what, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to focus, I'm going to be laser focused on this one thing. And I know what I'm good at. How did it happen? And when did it happen? Yeah, actually, that's a great question for being a kid that made R and B, you know, urban, it's a weird word right now, R and B hip hop music in Calgary. It was always a challenge for me because I thrive the best when the people around me are thriving and I have, people to look at that are killing it and doing well and, and that I can learn from and people that I can ask questions to and from. And I know that that's the case for a lot of people. I need that for growth. And I wasn't necessarily getting it here in Calgary, even though there's great R&B and artists here. So I started traveling to Toronto and to Montreal is where I started doing writing trips and trying to meet people. And it really like, it got me fired up. It got me in like growth state of mind. Like, I could meet all of these people and learn from them and then start making music with them. And then my first big trip was I went to Enfield, Nova Scotia to work with Classified. You know, I'm a Classified fan. His music's been on the radio since I was a kid. So that was like the first time that I was like, yo, this is actually really cool. Now I'm doing this with people that I look up to on such a big scale. And it's been addictive. I, I'd say that's like when I really, yeah, dove, dove all the way into it. Like no regrets. I, type I thing. love it. So then what would you say separates those successful artists that you admire from the ones who don't quite make it? What would your guess would be? Ooh, that's a really good question. I mean, here's the thing with the music industry and with artists' careers. One of the hardest things about it is that in other industries, you have the opportunity to learn from somebody. Like if I was, for example, raising money you know, you and I could talk and you could share some of your perspectives with me and some of, you know, your journey and some advice for me. And I could literally take that and apply it tangibly to what I'm doing. And we might have similar outputs. It's like much more of an input equals output type of lane. 
obviously with Shades of Grey. But with music, I could ask 15 artists what they did. They could all be at the same level, the same tier of success. And in this case, let's say they're doing extremely well. Not one of them will have the same path. One of them might have gone viral on TikTok. One of them might have had a song that went to radio. Uh, one of them literally had a song heard on SoundCloud by a record exec. One of them sent a million emails, not an one of them answered and it finally went, whereas the other one made a YouTube cover and their manager found them and then it all went from there. And then there's a million steps in between it. And there's, there's no two artist stories that are necessarily similar. Then how do you succeed? Like as an artist or for example, in your shoes, like how do you choose the right path to success? Cause you can't do everything. You can't do the TikToks and covers and YouTube and Instagram live and concerts and, and trying to email 17,000 people. So like, how do you choose? The crazy thing is you kind of do have to do all of it. You do. And that's, that's the part that I don't think a lot of people understand about becoming an artist um, and breaking through that threshold from like, even someone like me, I mean, there's thresholds that you have to break through to get to where I am, but to get to where my goals are, even in the next 12 months, it's like one of my TikToks could blow and that could give me an opportunity, but my live show has to be great. I need to be a, a strong singer. My penmanship, I have to be able to write consistently. I can't just write songs when I'm inspired. I have to do it as a practice, like, a, like going to the gym. All of these things that any one of them could move the needle for you. To answer your first question, what separates artists from the ones that really make it to the ones that you know don't? For example, somebody at my level, a lot of people quit at my level. And it's not even like a, I'm throwing in the towel. It's like, I'm almost 30. I want to make sustainable income with my life. I have lifestyle decisions. I want to get married. I want to have kids. You know what I mean? A lot of people just decide that this pursuit isn't worth it anymore. The biggest difference to me is staying the path. You know, everybody almost that's made it has said that it's a test of time. It truly is. And two, it's, it's your team. It's always going to be the amplification that you build around you. And then three, I think at the end of the day, financial resources become a really relevant factor in this industry. All of these different lucky things could happen, but when you have working capital, you can push the envelope on digital ads on TikTok. You can hire a, a TikTok influencer to give your song a really tangible boost. You know, you can hire PR in the UK. You can pay $50,000 to have an artist feature on your song. You know, that type of, you know, again, working capital makes a huge difference. And I think that that's a really big defining line between a lot of artists, not all of them, but a lot of them. I like how that business degree actually, you know, comes into play right now. <laughs> the oh, working capital, sure. raising money, raising That's funds. Right. Okay. So then I guess the next question, where do you find working capital? Then I assume artists are very similar to startups, right? You hoping to get somewhere like a tech startup, you have this idea, you have the vision, you have the product, but you need someone to sponsor you and obviously get you to the next level. So as an artist, how is it different from business startup? No, that's a great, great question. I'm so happy that I could, we could talk about this in depth. So let's go. Difference number one, it's closer to tech because it's not like a CPG, right? We're not talking about a tangible for sale product, shelf space and value equals sales. Right, let's go tech startup for a sec. It's like build users. You put out songs that bring in fans, hopefully, and you have to retain them and turn them into consistent customers and 
that's like the core difference I'd say in the business is because a fan can come and go in a second. Building brand affinity with a fan is like really difficult. Like, like they say 70,000 songs come out every Friday. Yours has to cut through somehow, right? So building affinity is really difficult. That was just like a quick ode to, you know, how different the business is. And I could go on for, on that for fucking forever. But to talk about capital, step one, record labels are VCs. And they are, you know, institutions that are looking for assets. And they're looking for artists that are creating music, putting it out, have fans already, creating cash flow. Back in the day, it used to be, there's a dope band. They have talent. I can, my vision, I can see them on billboards. Let's sign you. Let's go to Hollywood. Now it's like, all right, I see you. I see your talent. I see your vision. But there's 500 other people over here with bigger numbers than you because of social media. And so I think I might fuck with one of them because it's more of a tangible asset than you. And so that's really the tricky thing about today is record label partnerships. They just look differently. And the trickiest part about a label is, you know, it's not just debt or equity financing. They actually own your music and they generally secure you for a pretty long period. Like let's say four or five albums, which could be five to 10 years. And so making that decision of if you want that business partner, it's very important to understand where you are in the timeline of your own vision and if it makes sense at that time. And for me, I want to build a house that is independent and strong and filled with fans and brand affinity before I secure a partner like that because of all of the variables that come in. So this is a long-winded rant and this is not to dive too deep into music industry shit, but like you have little VCs, you have little record labels and you have big ones and the little ones can really join a team and can be very synergetic with you. The big ones could put money into you just like they put into 200 other artists that year. And if you're not tangibly producing, you're not going to become a priority to them anymore. So it's really important to make sure that you can prove it and you can get results at the time that you make that partnership. So that's on the label side. And that's what a lot of artists do. Now me, I've actually been working on raising some capital. It's been like a focus of mine for the last couple of months, because like I said, I don't want to be one of those artists that didn't make it because I didn't have the resources and some of my past music. I think it's great. Like I love my music and a lot of people do too, but I just haven't really had the money to put it in front of more people. Then that's very limited. Moving forward, I'm trying to raise some money just on a straight up debt type of perspective and make sure that I have the opportunity to really push it. And I think with the new music that I have, if I can do that, no matter what, no matter how it comes, if I have the right resources behind it, I know that I'll accomplish my goals. So it's just a matter of figuring it out. Ah, I love how you view yourself as a startup. What is that magic number that you think is going to get you to the next level that you're looking for, either debt or equity? I would say for the next 12 months, if I can put together two hundred to $250,000, it would give me ample room to execute. If I had 100000 liquid to execute these campaigns, I also think I would do a great job. If I have thirty to 50000 for each of the singles that I want to put out, each one of them could be the one that breaks down the door. And then when we're talking about fifty to $100,000 to $200,000, we are talking about nominal dollars because... The opportunity scope is so much bigger and so is the budget. Like to put a song out or to market a song at American Radio is like a $2 million marketing project. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm kind of taking it in chunks and raising them song by song. And then, yeah, hopefully we bust the door down with one of them. And when we do, then, you know, it's a different conversation, more access to finance. 
Oh, that's so exciting. So then what about crowdfunding campaigns, crowdsourcing, Patreon, anything else that's out there? OnlyFans? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Joe. that's not it. <laughs> How did you know? Did you find me? Did you find my OnlyFans? No. It's weird for me. I don't know. I asked myself, I've had this conversation a couple of times in the last two months because a lot of people suggest it. But then part of me worries that there's like this weird artist integrity thing. <laughs> it might be ego. It honestly might be. I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. But something about like putting a campaign together, asking people and fans and public for money, it, it feels weird. And it feels like it goes against some weird kind of artist code that some people have. And again, maybe it's all up here, but. I see. But then the other thing that you also do is you have merchandise on your store. A lot of tech startups, that's what they do in order to make sure that they have steady cash flow. They cover their customer acquisition cost by the extra products that they produce. So like a lot of software companies will find data and they'll package into like a subscription magazine that they will release every month or every week. And then that's how they cover the marketing expenses for their digital campaigns and stuff from the extra products. Would that be similar to the store? So if people just buy stuff on your store, it'll be good enough for you to be able to sustain the dream and fuel the, the engine? Yes, there are definitely like cash flow opportunities. Merch is a great one. You're right. So is streaming realistically today. Like 10 years ago, you put out music, you just have to sell shit on iTunes or it's getting stolen. Now, because of subscription service, so it's half a cent per stream. So a million streams is $5,000. So if I have a song that gets played a million times a month, that's $5,000 of income every month. Their songs are really passive income at this point. That's the other thing is as different songs begin to take their own life and as you inject capital into the marketing these songs, if they yield results, you're getting paid. So it definitely does help supplement it. And then, you know, you look at, as your brand builds, you look at endorsement opportunities for more income touring, you know, your song is getting placed in film and commercial and stuff like that. But that's a big reason why, again, like I said, you know, your team is really important because if you have somebody handling all of those different, you know, revenue streams and you execute, this is definitely a sustainable business, but it's, it's very difficult to, kind of cross the line from when it's not to when it is. Interesting. I, and I thank you for sharing all of the little details and all the big details and explaining how things work. Because again, you are the expert and I don't know how things work properly. I guess the next question would be now with COVID, how are things different? Now you can't tour, you can't do the concerts. How's the industry changing? Do you have to wear the mask, the gear? Like, what does it look like? I've shown is the biggest driver for artists, especially when you're releasing music in a great live shows, you tour and you've got a brand that's working. You got to hit the road and get on tour and make your freaking money. So that not being even alive anymore is really, really crazy. It's not a huge, huge factor for me right yet. Like, you know, I, I tour and I play shows, but it's still at the level that financially it's, it's not like I'm really missing out, but that's changed everything. I think the fact that everybody's home and in their creative spaces, less distracted generally. A lot more music is being made. A lot more music is coming out. And it's pushing people in terms of content to create differently uh, and definitely create more. So there's just, it's changed in a lot of ways. Yeah. Does it present an opportunity or more of a challenge? Like, you know, now that everyone is at home, they can consume more, but then also every creator is at home so they can create more. 
I guess, what do you see? Like, is it an opportunity? Is it a challenge? Do you see it as a good thing? Is not uh, such a great thing? It is definitely both. It's an opportunity because the times provide you new opportunities. And if they work, they work. Just like if TikTok wasn't around, some of the biggest songs in the world right now wouldn't be big, period. But it is. And so they are. And so COVID is a TikTok of its own. It definitely is weird. I think if you can, like we talked about before, if you can cut through, if you can find a way to, then hell yeah, huge opportunity. And if you can't, you're going to look at it and say, damn, it was too hard because of COVID or all of these other factors. So regardless, you just kind of have to keep it moving, I would say. Let's put it this way. Like even with working with brands, a lot of brands are out of cash and struggling right now. And other brands are sitting there their businesses are growing because of online sales. And meanwhile, other brands, maybe sales are consistent, but their marketing outlets are limited. You can't do music festivals. You can't do live activations. You can't really put your product in front of human beings in the same way. And so an opportunity, for example, is you can leverage artists who have followings to do more branded activations, content. Like There's a lot more of that happening right now, for sure. I and like it. Yeah, more accessible to different levels of artists, I think. So then has COVID inspired you to create a different type of music? Or I mean, obviously, the past six months have been pretty nuts. What inspiration have you found in the past six months to write? From April till June, I was writing a ton, like almost a song a day or starting on a song a day. I was really inspired in, in a good workflow. And that was necessary to get me through that time. Um, and since I've come back to Calgary, Lifestyle-wise, I've been a lot more relaxed. I see my family and my friends. I have more balance and more outlets than before when I was locked in a room in Ontario, you know? So my creative, actually, to be real with you, I haven't been writing a ton. But in terms of inspiration as a human, which is going to come through in your music regardless, the last six months have been nuts, right? Like, they've been overwhelming as hell for everybody in different capacities. I come from a pretty mixed background. My mom's from Trinidad. She's an immigrant. My brother is black. Uh, he's my half-brother, my brother. My dad is white. I was christened Hindu when I was born, but I've never really practiced that faith. My dad's side of the family is Jewish, so I did practice Judaism when I was younger. I, I have like this weird background, which I love. And uh, obviously, everything that's happened in the last year, focally, pertaining to equal rights and Black lives and everything else has been um, very much on my mind. So I, I'm inspired from the point of view that I want to contribute and help as a human and in music. So I'm working on a couple of things in that lane. Two years ago, almost, I moved to Toronto. And since then, you know, there's just been so many different personal experiences, life growth, breakups, new opportunities. I've been traveling a ton. Obviously, COVID, it's just been a the biggest two years of growth of my entire life. And so even though I haven't been writing a ton lately, I can't wait to kind of see like all of it come out. It's going to be exciting. I mean, I am excited to see all the new material because definitely this year wasn't easy for anyone. And I'm yeah. sure for the artists, it's very similar. Now, mm. I guess, what are your tips in dealing with COVID isolation, stress and anxiety? Everything that, you know, the past six months presented us with, how do you deal with those things and what are your tips? Okay, so let me preface by saying, I don't think that I have it dialed in. I'm sure a lot of people do and are extremely regimented, 
especially at this point because it's been months now. That's dope. The best I can do is try to achieve balance. And that's what I've been working on. And I've had ebbs and flows with it. Like I've had times where I'm locked in. I have a routine. I understand that like in my lifestyle, especially in Toronto, I don't have much of a routine. Like I'm in the studio till three sometimes. I have a meeting at eight sometimes in the morning. I have a broad ass life. I have a spectrum of lifestyles and I feel like I live them all within like two weeks. You know what I mean? And I'm seldom in the same place. So for me, being locked up, actually having a home base, having opportunities to like actually cook for myself consistently, you know what I mean? It's like allowed me to pursue more balance. So if I was giving anybody advice, from my own experience, I would say that balance is really key. The, yesterday, and the reason I say it's ebbs and flows is yesterday, I did what I hate doing. And I know it's not good for me, but I literally woke up. I knew a task that I had to do right away hit me. I grabbed my laptop and I put it on my lap and I, like lying down. And I worked for like two and a half hours right there. I'm not mad at the fact that I got work done, but it's not consistent with again, balance. So my best days are like when I get up and I hit a cold shower and meditate and get a workout in or get a walk in, come back, get a green smoothie and then hit work. And I'm already flowing, but I don't always take it that way. Do you have days when you record, when you write, like, do you have a specific time slot that you write in like every morning at nine or something similar to that? Not quite the same way. I know that I said I treat songwriting like going to the gym and I, I do when I'm in that flow, I'm for sure writing. Sometimes I'm writing three times a day. Like I'll have a session at nine at, you know, two and then at seven. So it's absolute madness from that perspective, but where I'm focused on releasing new stuff, which is coming super soon. So my work is a lot more on the laptop, on emails and uh, with my team right now. I love it. So a little bit of a pivot. If you could go back and advise your younger self something, what would it be? First of all, listen to mom because <laughs> she is the most organized person ever. And she's always tried to push organization on me. And I just like, I was like, mom, get out of here. Like, I don't want any of that shit. And now I'm like, I'm a relatively disorganized human being. I have to work very hard to like, keep it locked in. I would force myself to be more like small detail oriented and task focused in terms of changing things. That's it. Like that's the only one. Maybe I would probably tell him not to hit up my ex. I would probably tell him that too. No, I'm, just, I'm totally joking. Learning <laughs> lessons. We need them. Above all, all that, I would say, which I hope is right. I would say, believe in yourself and your vision. That's definitely what I would say because a lot of us are figuring it out on the way. And the self-belief and worth and all of that comes as a part of the process. So I don't think I could just tell him that and he would get it. But if I just told him to, to believe in himself and yeah, that he's not wrong, that would be it. I'm proud of where I'm at and, and where we're going. I think we're all proud of you. You Thank go. You. <laughs> if you learned something in the past 12 months, if you said that, you know, this is the lesson that I've really learned and honed mm -hmm. on the past 12 months, what would that be? It would be closely related to that last answer. It'd be trusting myself. I'm still learning, but it's about which you to trust because we're these multidimensional creatures with anxieties 
with stresses, with excitement, with passion. And I don't know if you relate to this, but on varying days, I'll feel, you know, I'll have a different perspective to different things, obviously. And sometimes where it gets confusing, especially when it comes to making critical decisions is like, which me am I listening to? So when you're going through a breakup, you're like, you know, she's great or he's great, but you know, they make me feel this way, but we have this history, but this, but that. And it's like, which Ruben is the right one. And I think a good first step and what I've been learning a good first step towards that is understanding which Rubens exist, why they're there and who to listen to when. And I think that's like definitely something that I'm working on slowly, but I've had a gut feeling about a big decision that I made recently and I've had a gut feeling about it for months and I didn't really listen to it and I can't change that. But now that it's come to fruition, I have to look back and say, and the next time that feeling comes back, am I going to listen to it? And where was that message coming from? Was it from anxiety or was it from fear or from love or for growth or everything else? And I need to acknowledge that moving forward so that I know how to listen to myself better. I love this journey of self-discovery. It's amazing. It. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. Now, if you want to obviously always be up to date, you want to know the trends, you're a smart guy, business school graduate, where do you find your resources, books, things you consume? Obviously, you have to keep up with life in general, but also trends in your own industry, but also run yourself like a business, raise money. How do you keep yourself up to date and educate yourself on everything? That's a great question. I don't think I do enough of it. I have people like I follow Tim Ferriss. I follow Rick Rubin. I follow Tony Robbins. Like I listen to those guys for kind of growth guidance, which is in, in waves as well. But in terms of staying up on things, I consume a lot of social media, which is what it is. But I don't follow economics nearly as much as I used to or as much as I want to anymore. But it's just, I don't know. I got to be more regimented to find the time to fucking do that, to like be on top of everything. So it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Makes I, need sense. To, I need more. Tim Ferriss podcast is dope. I listen to him. I listen to Joe Rogan. And like, I think that, you know, 2020 is cool because we can seek information from so many different sources. So there's a lot of them. I totally agree. Okay. So then in your industry, what do you see the next thing that's up and coming or in general in life? Like, where do you see the next opportunity? What do people should be paying attention to? What should we keep our eyes open for other than your music? Obviously. That's the only answer. Motherfuckers, look out for me. No, I'm just joking. The trends? It, like, you mean in music? Just anywhere, I guess, you know, like the next Bitcoin, the next generational thing that we're looking, the next TikTok, like where should we keep our eyes, ears and opportunities open? Like what should we jump on the next train or maybe the existing train? Maybe TikTok mm -hmm. is not far gone yet. From my perspective, yep. AI is everything in the future. Like the other day we had a conversation about dating and I, with my brother and I and my sister-in-law and like, they're 11 years older than me. So it was like one way and one way only to date. I got to see you like build up the goods to be like, Maria, yo, hi, I love your glasses. What's up? I'm Ruben. <laughs> and like actually do it and go from there. But in obviously this world is way different and it's hinge and Tinder and all this. So we were talking about what it's going to be like for my nephew in 10 years. And I'm like, yo, I don't know. <laughs> 
have you seen the movie Her? I have seen that movie. The movie Her with Scarlett Johansson, I think. Oh, the only person I can think of is Joaquin Phoenix in it. <laughs> okay. She's like the voice? I think so. It's a super sexy voice, so that would add up. That would definitely add up. Anyways, I was just saying, I talk to Siri all the time, not about my personal emotions, but <laughs> to get through my day. And I think that that is the way tech is progressively moving. And I'm excited to see how that goes across the board. You know what? Here's opportunity. I have been going to Belize since I was a kid. Yeah, my like best buddy's family has like some real estate out there. And so I started going out there when I was a kid. And the way I've watched that country grow and develop is nuts. And my buddy works in real estate there now. So I've really gotten some great perspective on the market and on how it operates and moves, especially compared to Mexico. And I know that a lot of Canadians and Americans are looking at diversifying portfolio especially in real estate. One of the things about Belize that is so interesting is compared to places like Nicaragua, Guatemala, Mexico, where there's Napoleonic civil law, so you can't actually own land, you're just leasing it from the government. There's full foreign ownership in Belize, so you can actually acquire your land. Like the supply and demand curve there is completely adverse to Mexico, where Mexico's oversaturated. You can get a mansion for cheap when it comes to renting, but purchasing is outrageously expensive compared to Belize where purchasing is relatively expensive, but the rental market is unbelievable. I shouldn't say it's relatively expensive. Belize is still developing compared to a place like Mexico. So for prime real estate, you're looking at like nominal figures, but you can rent for 2X and the market is booming. So it's a really interesting place. Anybody who's interested in international real estate, I highly recommend you Google Belize, Google's Ambergris Key, which is the island that my buddy lives on and that I've learned the most about. And hit me up if you want to chat about it. I love this. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm yeah. going to, instead of buying a condo in Toronto for a million, you can go to Belize and to find something there. That's what I'm saying. You know what a couple of buddies and I are looking at doing? There's like the highest growth area in the entire country. It's called Secret Beach. So there's lots of land that are $35,000 US and there's financing available. There's a vendor financing so you can do it uninstitutionally. You can go like 30% down, 10,000 US to lock up a piece of land in like in a booming market is nuts. I love this. Okay. Okay. That's another thing to look up and then hit you up on that other than the music. Awesome. <laughs> there's, okay. like, there's so few places in the world, like being from Calgary, you know, you hear parents talk about, oh, I bought this house for 85,000 and now it's 2 million. You're like, the fuck, bro? I'll <laughs> never have that in Calgary or in Toronto. There's no way. I like it. Okay. So fair enough. Thank you for that answer. I will, I will message you on that one separately. You now, To continue on this journey, uh, every guest who comes on the show, we ask the following things. A millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. A millennial is. Okay, a millennial is going to face challenges unlike any other generation. I don't even know if I count as a freaking millennial. But anyways, millennial is right in between eras of crazy lifestyle, technological changes in our day-to-day lives and in the way our world operates. 
and we're still connected to the old ways. Our parents were real ass boomers and my brother being 10 years older than me had none of none of it. I got my first cell phone in grade 10, I think. And whereas now my niece and nephew, who my niece is 10, she has a cell phone. She's an iPhone. I had a freaking Motorola Razor, which looked sick, but like there's two things to do on it, right? So like that's giant. So we're like right in the middle of it. So we're, we face a lot of different challenges. I think we still have the interpersonal skills of older generations, but we have the know-how of the next ones. So yeah. Sounds like a good opportunity for us, I'd say. I'd say. What about a millennial should be? And you are, you are a millennial, by the way. You, yeah, I'm like right on the edge though, aren't I? Millennials up to 36. Okay, and sick. I'm, 25, I'm, 24 to 36 or something like that. Thank you for clarifying that for me. Here <laughs> I am on the freaking millennial show, not knowing. Leave it to me. But <laughs> a millennial should be. I think a millennial should be able to use all of the information that we have available to us to be the most informed, empathetic generation, period. We should be able to use all of the information and empathy that our generation has versus the past and use it for exceptional things. And that can apply to business or like our day-to-day ass lives or to our social causes. Like we care about other people. We have the ability to care about other people unlike ever before. And I think that that's really important. I love this. I really do. Okay. And millennial is not. Millennial is not. Let's go with limited. Oh, I love this. <laughs> let's, just, let's just boom. Let's just say limited and boom, mic drop that shit. Oh, okay. Well, with the mic drop, uh, where do our listeners find you? Where can they reach out to you? How they connect with you? Okay. So definitely I'm on Instagram at the rubs for real. T-H-E-R-U-B-S. That's kind of like central location A. Outside of that, if you want to listen to me, which I love and I'd love to hear what you think. My name is Ruben, R-U-B-E-N, Young, and I'm on everything, Spotify, Apple, all that stuff. So check it out there. And then anything else is, you know, Googleable. <laughs> Googleable. Love it. Well, thank you for joining us. You've been amazing today. Thank you for finding time. And uh, I can't wait for your new stuff to come out and have you again on the show. Thank you for having me and hanging out with me. I miss you. Yeah, I miss you too.